Welcome to another episode of the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. As a clinician, I focused on fertility and used Dutch testing to uncover the role that hormones play in a couple's ability to conceive. On the Dutch Podcast, I'll be joined by experts in functional medicine who will help us make sense of our body's hormones and take the guesswork out of treating hormone-related issues. Coming up on this week's episode, we're talking about a dirty topic, the environment. While I'm sure you're aware that the environment and the chemicals we're exposed to can influence our hormones, you've likely never gone this deep. Today, we're gonna discuss exactly which toxins can wreak the most havoc on your hormones, how they do this to your body, and most importantly, what you should be doing to avoid them and heal any damage that's been done. Today's guest is Dr. Joseph Pizzorno. Dr. Pizzorno is a naturopathic physician and has been a leader in functional and environmental medicine for over four decades. He has authored or co-authored seven books for consumers, including one I'd love you to know about today, The Toxin Solution, and six textbooks for doctors. Welcome, Dr. Pizzorno. Well, thank you for the kind introduction, Jacqueline, and thank you also for the great work you, you do in the world. You, uh, you, you validate all the hard work I put in creating Bastion University. <laughs> wonderful to have you as one of my graduates. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I didn't mention in your bio, I mean, Dr. Bozorno's bio, we could spend the entire hour probably going through it, but um, he was one of the founders of Bastion University where I went to school and where I was drawn to because it was the most like known as being such science-based education in natural medicine. And really, um, you know, Dr. Joe, you've been like inspiring for me with all of the things that you've done, but enough glowing about you. Um, I'm excited to talk today about environmental medicine, but seeing that you've come through this enormous career in functional, integrative, naturopathic medicine, what brought you to be most interested in environmental toxicity? Yeah, and that's a great question. So obviously, as a naturopathic doctor, I've always been interested in nutrition and, and toxins, okay? The you know, foundational naturopathic concept is get nutrients into your patients and get the toxins out of them. I mean, we've always known that. But in the past, I was more focused on, you might say, um, the toxins based on decisions people were making. So where people smoke, okay, well, mm-hmm. obviously, they're going to have a lot of toxins. Where they work in the garage and use a lot of solvents and weren't being careful about it. Or um, I practice in Seattle, and it used to be like when I was in private practice, like a quarter of my patients came, came from Port Townsend, which was, which was at the time considered the wooden boat capital of the world. Okay, so I got all these patients come in with solvent exposure uh, mm-hmm. from fiberglass and all this other stuff. So that was all pretty straightforward. But then uh, about 20 years ago, I started noticing a, a change, and it really got validated about 10 years ago when I did a bunch of research. I was starting to notice that people were suffering toxicity, not based on the active decisions they were making, but based on the environment becoming so polluted that almost no matter what they did, they were being exposed to toxins. Then I did a a corporate wellness program in Canada where one of the wealthiest self-made people in Canada had come to me uh, about a dozen years ago and said, I want to improve the health of my employees. They were oil field workers. Uh, I would like you to give me some advice on the natural medicine approach to this. I said, well, of course, happy to do that. But, you know, while I'm a true believer in natural medicine, I'm also very uh, evidence-based. So I said, we're going to assess the toxic load in your patients. If I want to improve the health of your, of your employees, I'm going to do some lab tests. I'll give you objective about it. 
So we want to check the nutritional status, check their toxic status, check their physiological function. And I asked him, how much can I spend? He said, blank check. I said, really? He said, yes, if you can convince me that this is going to help my employees, I will pay for it. So I did $1,500 of lab tests on 4,500 oil field workers. Okay. Wow. Now, and this is, remember, this was about a dozen years ago. So that, that $1,500 is worth almost twice as much now. Yeah. Uh, or half as much, depending on how you look at it. Okay. Anyway, um, so what I found was surprising. I found a lot of toxicity. Now, of course, I was thinking oil field workers, you know, I must have a lot of exposure. So that's, you know, why I really looked into toxicity. Yeah. Well, it turns out oil field workers are not oil manufacturing workers. Okay, so not people working in these big plants, a lot of chemical exposure. These are typically guys, typically in the 30s, get in the pickup truck, drive out to the prairies in Alberta, and check to make sure the pumps are working with the crude oil. They were getting no exposure. So that's the interesting. They're outside all day, right? So they're, you know, probably not in that indoor environment. So I can see what you mean. It's not like petroleum processing at that point. No. It's mostly no, just outdoors. There was not industrial exposure. We, mm. We've gone in expecting industrial exposure, but that's not what we found. So I was looking at all these. So you, you're familiar with the laboratory test GTTP. So yeah. that's a liver enzyme that, as you know, as doctors, you normally measure to see if the person has hepatitis. Well, we used to. There's now better methods, but it used to be the kind of standard for detecting hepatitis. What's interesting about GTTP is that it's a liver enzyme that, yes, if the liver's damaged, it leaks into the blood. But it's also an enzyme that the body intentionally upregulates in proportion to toxic load. Hmm. And I always find a lot of people with high GTTPs. Now, now let's stop on? for a second, because this okay. lab test is one that's available everywhere, right? You St know, any lab major lab can do it. Yeah. And what does it cost for a patient to run that test? Well, $15, $20. I mean, it's yeah. part of a standard panel. It's cheap. It's so cheap, right? So. Yeah. This is like one of the biggest takeaways I've gotten because I've read the Toxin Solution book and I, I actually utilize to screen my patients the lab assessment that you recommend at the oh, back with a scoring great. guide. Thank you. Um, so I use that all the time, but I know GDTP is like really the predominant marker there, but it's so yes. inexpensive yes. to be doing this kind of screening. So I can't, we'll dive into more details of that later, but sorry yes. to continue your story. Oh no, good. Please, please do that. So, yes. so now what does GTTP do? It recycles glutathione. <laughs> So I'm sure everybody on this podcast know how critically important glutathione is for mitochondrial function, protects from oxidative stress, uh, etc. I mean, if you want to look at one molecule in the body to have as much as possible of glutathione, that molecule. So our smart bodies, when we're exposed to environmental toxins, increase the activity of this enzyme to recycle glutathione more quickly to protect us from those environmental toxins. Now, why this is so important is that it turns out that there's a direct correlation between body load of many environmental toxins and many diseases. And I think everybody's particularly aware right now of diabetes. When I was in Mishpatrick Medical School half a century ago, diabetes affected about 1% of the population. Mm. Now it's between 10 and 15% of the population. What happened? So it turns out that we've been exposed to a lot of diabetogens in the environment. These are metals and chemicals that cause diabetes. So, so wait a second, out. you're talking yes. about environmental chemicals causing diabetes, not corn syrup and sugar intake and things like that. I mean, of yep. course, that's a contributing factor as well. Yep. But 
How does the impact compare for environmental toxins compared to nutrition? Yeah, very good question. Because I, you know, being a natural doctor, I always thought, well, too much sugar consumption is a key reason, or could be a chromium deficiency, could be lack mm-hmm. of fiber. Those are all important, but they don't account for the epidemic of diabetes we're seeing. Because, for example, you look at the excess sugar consumption, we've been consuming too much sugar for a long time. The diabetes epidemic does not correlate with sugar consumption. Mm-hmm. So then the other thing you look at, you look at kind of the conventional things. Well, how about obesity? Yeah, obesity really correlates with diabetes. But here's the kicker. And here's what really got me into this environmental medicine issue. If you look at obese people in the bottom 10% of byload of environmental diabetogens, they don't have increased risk for diabetes. Let me say that again. Obesity is a strong risk factor for diabetes, but only if the fat is full of diabetogens. Not full diabetogens, they don't get increased diabetes. That's huge. That's huge. So really, like, because adipose tissue is where we store the majority of toxins, you can imagine people with obesity, they have bigger storage tanks, right? So they have the opportunity to maybe hold more within their body than someone who's lean. Um, But what you're saying is people who have, like, low levels of toxins in their body and are obese don't seem to have the elevated risk that other people do. No. Wow. So let's go back to GTTP. So it turns out GTP, the normal range, depends on the lab, depends on whether male or female, but it's about 10 to 50. Okay. A little higher for look higher range for men on top, a little lower range for women on the bottom. But let's say 10 to 50 for convenience. So it turns out that a GTTP, GTTP within the normal range is predictive of diabetes. So if you have people with a GTTP between 40 and 50, kind of at top end of the normal range, 20-fold increased risk for diabetes. 20-fold. So that means it's probably 20. missed by providers, right? If it's in the normal range, no one's even looking at that. No one's even looking at that. Yeah, wow. if they're at 40, they probably have diabetes that hasn't been diagnosed yet. Wow. Okay. A GTT above 30, eight-fold increased risk. Okay. Remember, 10 to 50 is normal. But yeah, at so 30, your body's already saying, I'm hurting. I have to wow. lose more glutathione because I'm getting zapped with these uh, diabetogens. Of course, endocrine disruptors, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So isn't that interesting? So then I started looking into, well, why are these oil fill workers so high in all these chemicals? Well, number one, they're eating the standard North American diets. They're having the standard North American exposures. But what's really interesting, at the time when I did this, a third to half of them were working in the oil fields to subsidize the family farms. Because with mm-hmm. agribusiness, the smaller farms could no longer make it, and they would work in the oil fields to bring the extra income they needed. And what were they doing on the family farms? Herbicides, pesticides, heavy metals, all these chemical exposures um, and metal exposures that were at a higher level than the general population. Wow. So that really grabbed my attention. Yeah, that's amazing. And that really kind of opened up decades of research for you to kind of dive into that more because, you know, kind of takeaway from your book, one of your books is that when we look at all of the lifestyle factors that we consider as functional and naturopathic Mm -hmm. providers, we're probably under prioritizing environmental exposures because- statistically, they have a bigger impact on a lot of these chronic diseases that we're seeing day in and day out. Yes. 
I, as a matter of fact, I wrote an editorial about three years ago, and people can get it in PubMed if they want to look for it, um, where I, I'm recommending that the standard of care, everyday primary, primary care practice, should now include measuring people's blood level of lead and urinary level of arsenic because mm. they are more predictive of disease than any other measure currently being used in primary care. Wow. Yeah. We'll include a link in the show notes for that um, for people to be able to access quickly. So when it comes to looking at hormones, because of course that's what everyone's listening to this podcast and we know that a lot of toxins impact hormones. What are the environmental toxins that concern you most when it comes to hormone disruption? There's so much we can talk about. So I'll I'll talk initially about two of them. I want to talk about uh, perchlorates, and I want to talk about bisphenols. Okay. So perchlorates are these oxidative chemicals that are widely used um, in industry and environment. Uh, well, water supplies are contaminated with it. And um, the reason people are concerned about it is because it binds to iodine. Mm. So the concern is people exposed to perchlorates, well, they're going to get hypothyroidism because of the iodine binding. But when they do the epidemiological research, they don't see statistical differences in hypothyroidism between people at the top exposure to those at the bottom exposure. I mean, there are some differences, but not as big as you expect. Mm. So basically, the concern about it affecting thyroid function was basically dismissed by the conventional world. So last week, I was asked by uh, Great Plains Laboratory to give a lecture on the toxic chemicals they most commonly find in their laboratory testing. And by the way, I should say I'm a scientific consultant for uh, get, for uh, for a GPL now. And uh, one of the things they've asked me to do is recommend what lab tests to, to run in environmental mm. medicine, which of course I love doing. So one of the ones they asked me to, to look at was the perchlorates. So, uh, and, and the reason I came to that is I said, okay, you want me to do a new lecture for you? What chemicals do you see most often? And mm. I'm going to look at each one of those chemicals, see how bad they are. So perchlorate, I think, is probably as good an example of the problem with these environmental toxins of, of anything I've looked at. So when you look at the disease associations, they're statistically not very strong. Okay. But when you do things like measure people's thyroid hormone levels, they're inversely proportional to perchlorate body level. So if wow. perchlorate levels go up and bind iodine, thyroid levels go down. Here's the beauty of it. If the thyroid levels didn't go down far enough to be hypothyroidism, it was not considered important. But let's go back and think about, well, what does the body want? The body wants this level of thyroid activity. And then when you start binding the iodine, it can't produce enough thyroid. So mm-hmm. still within the, quote, normal range, the normal range is not the healthy range. Within the normal range, it's considered okay. But as far as the body's concerned, they have less thyroid function than they want. So the TSH goes up, you know, the thyroid stimulant hormone goes up a bit. But again, not enough to be hypothyroidism, so it's not considered important. Mm. So you're getting people functionally low thyroid, but they're not being diagnosed with the disease because the thyroid hormone is supposedly normal. But it's just That's not what so interesting. to be. That's interesting. And with fertility, I mean, I'm sure you know this already, I'll but with fertility too. patients, we actually look at a tighter range for TSH. And this is not like naturopathic look, this is like endocrine society and Mm -hmm. ASRM, you know, conventional organizations recognize that when TSH is above 2.5, women have a higher rate of infertility. So that's so interesting because the normal range usually goes to 4.5 for most labs. So that could actually be not related to thyroid function directly. 
it may also be related to the underlying toxicity that's leading to those changes. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. Interesting. So, so what's also interesting about this, it, it, it just, it's just so congruent with you know, how you and I uh, think about patients. So it turns out the perchlorates, if the person has high levels of iodine in their diet, well, it's not going to be as bad because mm-hmm. even though it binds to iodine, it's enough extra to work. Well, if the low iodine levels are there, much bigger impact. Mm. Same thing with other glycogens. Remember, glycogens are by definition molecules in the uh, food and environment that bind to iodine. Well, if a person is also consuming a lot of other glycogens, then also perchlorates could be more problematic as well. So other glycogens out, would be like brassica vegetables or too they could be healthy family. things too. Yeah. Too many brassica family vegetables is, is a good example. Too much bromine uh, in, their, in their diet, things of this nature that competes with that. A bunch of examples. So again, it shows how I, I, I think it shows why we're so important for patients, because we're able to look at the complete picture um, mm-hmm. and look at, it's not just the thyroid hormone levels. It's, it's not just the perchlorate level. It's also the iodine levels. It's also the goitrogen levels. It's also the other nutrients needed uh, for the thyroid to function properly. So by taking the complete picture, we're able to restore health in our patients. Yeah, that's fascinating. And we think about thyroid as being this like discrete entity, but it has so many impacts on other hormone systems. Like for example, um, one of the things we talk a lot about is stress and cortisol and thyroid, you know, thyroid levels, thyroid hormone levels dictate the rate of cortisol clearance by the body. So it can really, yeah. So if um, the the conversion and excretion, kind of that clearance rate of cortisol, so it can impact people's stress response and HPA axis. Of course, it impacts reproductive hormones. You know, thyroid is such a master hormone in the body that it's one that is so important for us to get right uh, or help patients get right. Yes. So let's shift and talk about bisphenols. I think bisphenols get a lot, they've gotten a lot of press. And of course, now everything is BPA-free, but is our problem solved being <laughs> BPA-free? <laughs> you obviously know the answer to that one. <laughs> Talk about a leading question. Yeah. So I, I, I first became really interested in bisphenols uh, at a lecture about uh, five years ago. So uh, one of another really illustrious graduates, uh, Dr. Uh, Lynn Patrick and uh, Dr. Uh, Anne-Marie Fine, uh, as you know, run the EHS, the Environmental Health Symposium. And yeah. So I, I, I've gone, and they, Walter Crean, unfortunately, now deceased there, you know, created that with them. So I was attending a lecture there by one of the foundational bisphenol researchers and heard the story, and it was just fascinating. And it, this is also real for me personally because it actually affected me personally. Mm-hmm. So when they were doing the original research on bisphenols, they were looking at them as estrogen analogs. And they were at that time also looking at um, uh, other estrogen analogs. And it turns out that uh, another synthetic chemical was more successful. So that ended up being the one that was used. And people may have heard of it it as a DES, diethyltryptophan. So it was used instead of um, uh, bisphenol like BPA. So it was put on the shelf. It was way back in the 40s or 50s when the research was done. But then it was discovered to be important for plastic. So all of a sudden, it went from being considered as a drug estrogen uh, analog to now a chemical that's put into our into our all the plastics we're being exposed to, many of the plastics we're being exposed to, and we now hugely uh, affected the whole population with this uh, environmental chemical. That's so scary. I mean, when you think about the impacts of DES, which is now is removed from the market due to safety yeah. concerns yeah. and you know causing permanent sterility in 
girls whose mothers were exposed in utero. You think about the impact, and I think about this all the time, but like, because I, again, I work with fertility, and I think about like the women that I work with today were in utero in probably the dirtiest time in America, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the yeah. 70s and the 80s. This is like the rise of industrial America, but we didn't yet have the awareness to know we shouldn't be dumping things in rivers and like, you know, we should be thinking thoughtfully about exposure. So I sometimes think about the, in utero impact for ovarian development, for example, and that I think I'm limited oftentimes in the peak fertility of the patients I'm working with because there is epigenetic, you know, transgenerational transgenerational epigenetic issues that arose from when they were in utero and what their mothers were exposed to. And that stinks, you know, that's like such a, I hope it will get better. But I do think that's a huge piece of why we see so many women with menstrual irregularities and hormone disruption and infertility for men as well. We haven't talked about men per se, but it's the same types of issues. These are estrogen mimicking hormones, right? So what are some of the impacts that they have? Like in, let's talk about women first, and then we can maybe talk about men. Okay. So I want to go back to the DS for a second, Um, because I remember this was a DS and bisphenol A were competing for the same job in medicine. Mm-hmm. And DS one didn't mean the BPA was not impactful. Right. So I'll just do my own personal DS story. Uh, my college uh, girlfriend, uh, mother, had taken a DS during her pregnancies with my girl, my college girlfriend, her sister, and her brother. My college girlfriend died of breast cancer in her thirties. Her younger sister died of u- urine cancer in her thirties. And oh my her brother goodness. died of prostate cancer in his third. Wow. So I give this as an example of folks, we've got to be careful about these chemicals. Yeah. Look how devastating they can be. Even if when prescribed and thought to be effective, these are not the right things for our bodies. Mm. Okay. So now you can see why there's so much concern about bisphenols. So let's go to let's go, let's look at male fertility. Uh, as near as I can tell, the bisphenols affect male fertility more than female fertility. Um, not that that's Good. <laughs> Research has no seen more on males. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, so one study that really grabbed my attention, they actually actually measured bisphenols, BPA, in the, in, in the semen. And they then looked at sperm. You may have seen the study. And they found that people with the lowest level of the bisphenols had normal levels of sperm with normal characteristics. As bisphenol levels went up, they first started having fewer sperm, then the few sperm they had turned out to start to become abnormal, and those at the highest level had no sperm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, it is really devastating. Now people are replacing bisphenol A with other bisphenols, saying, "Ah, bisphenol A free." Well, that's fine, but there's other bisphenols: bisphenol S, bisphenol A F, bisphenol Z. You know, there's twenty of them. It's Some very are really worse. Yeah, it's no sneaky in marketing because you would think like we've identified a problematic compound. It's marketed to be free of that compound. But like you said, they're just doing like a behind the scenes swap with something yep. that is equally or more harmful yes. and, you know, has a different letter after it, but they yes. don't disclose that. Yes. It makes it really hard for consumers to make good choices. You know, it's really in an unfair way, I would say, you know, by making it invisible, you know, to be able to, to tell whether you're making a good choice or not for yourself and your family. Yes. Well said. Well said. So um, let's go look, look at one of those bisphenol substitutes, bisphenol S. 
And as I can tell for male fertility, it's even worse than vitriolic. I've heard the same. Yeah, I, I, read, I saw one study where they looked at men and after they got, got rid of all known causes for their infertility, 25% of the infertility left over was due to bisphenol S. Okay. Wow. So how much, how much did it account for the average person? I don't know, but pretty significant. What are the main sources that people should be concerned about with bisphenols generally? Like I think people know about plastics per se, particularly food and plastics, right? Like not heating or not freezing things right. in plastic. But are there any like particular things you think people miss in their lifestyle? Can, canned food. Uh, cans are a major source of bisphenols because the cans, when they got rid of the lead solder for the cans, which was good, they and then and put in um, uh, was it the glues instead. Mm. But also with the, with the cans, rather than uh, galvanize them like they did in the past, they uh, lined them with plastic. And that plastic mm. is full of bisphenol A and it leaks into the food. I so always think true. about like coffee cups too. Like, you know, people who have that takeout coffee, we won't name brands, but like takeout coffee habits, those paper cups are lined with plastic also. In yeah. order, and then they also have a plastic lid, which it's a hot beverage. Yeah. It's steam rising up, condensing on the top, and dripping back into your drink. So, like if you have a coffee habit, I always tell my patients make sure you bring your own mug, you know, because Smart. that could, you know, really be cutting things down. And then paper receipts is another big one, right? Yeah. So the, you look at the paper receipts where they're using that um, heat sensitive paper for the printing, which is now almost all of them are that way. Well, they use bisphenols uh, in the uh, in those uh, inks on the paper, and mm -hmm. so people, for example, who work in grocery stores as grocers or, or as checkout people, have like twenty times higher levels of bisphenol A than the other population. And you start to look at the health problems they have, and yep, they have a bunch more health problems. Doctor Bazorno, we've covered so much on this episode already. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your research and your insights with us. There's so much more to cover, so we're going to take a break here and we'll continue with part two of our conversation about the effects of environmental toxins on our hormones next week, including what you need to do to avoid the major toxins and also lifestyle factors and supplements that can help. 